both of them involved with the music of our church. It makes you think you have to be named Dallas, just like you have to be James or Jim to be an elder, I think. I don't know how they got Bill out of that, you know. Anyway. So I think it's the first time I've ever heard a visitor introduced as being, he's from dancing. <laughs> That's kind of, <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. And he was from contra dancing, which, you know, I never heard of that till this morning when James told me about it. And I thought, okay, I know a lot of churches that are contra dancing. They're very much against dancing. That's what contra <laughs> means, right? And so, so he had to explain to me that it's kind of like, it's kind of like square dancing, but it's not. So anyway, if you really want to know, you can ask these people that have been contra dancing. Before we begin, I want to pray. I felt, I felt a lot of spiritual opposition to this morning's message. And so uh, that, that, that means, right, Dallas, Dallas is right. Often when you have that sense, it means there's going to be, the Lord wants to do something good. So let's pray for here for a second, if you would. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful, Father, that you choose to speak to us through your eternal word. And we pray this morning that all the things in this morning's message that are from Bill Sullivan would quickly fade and pass through people's minds, but all the things that are clearly uh, from your Holy Spirit as communicated through your word would uh, take root in our hearts and would minister to each of us here this morning. And that you would use it, Father, to change us more and more each day into the image and likeness of Christ. We commit this now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's the story of a little boy who pulls on the preacher's hand to get his attention. And he says, I'm going to give you money when I grow up. And the preacher says, well, thank you very much, but why do you want to give me money when you grow up? And the little boy says, well, my dad says that you're the poorest preacher we've ever had. Well, I thought of that story this past Sunday night after Bible Bowl when I had a money-related conversation with Johnny Failer. <laughs> now, a few times now, Johnny has shown me his little wallet. Has anybody, anybody else in the, yeah, had that? Yeah, he comes up. He loves to show you his wallet. He wants to show me the money he has. Well, last Sunday night, he comes to me with his wallet in hand, and he says, Coach Bill, because I love you, I want to give you some money. Huh? Isn't that cool? He says, I want to give you a quarter. And he pulls out a penny and he puts it in my hand. <laughs> so I'm sure he doesn't know what a quarter is. And, you know, I guess I could think that he just thought better of it and really didn't want to give me that much, right? And uh, at least he didn't want to give me money because John had told him I'm a poor preacher. <laughs> and that's two weeks in a row now that I've had an encounter with Johnny that tells you all you really need to know about why I'm 26 years in to Bible Bowl and I'm still doing it with no immediate plans to retire. The week before, at the end of Bible Bowl, we were putting things away and Johnny was up here on the stage at the treasure chest. And those of you in Bible Bowl, you remember the treasure chest? He was, looking, he was trying to pick out his prize, just agonizing, what am I going to pick, what am I going to pick? And Well, while he was doing that, I was right next to him and I sneezed a few times. And some of you have heard me sneeze. And some of my sneezes can be very loud and very, very violent. So, so I had the, oh, so Johnny comes over to me and he pats his little hand on my shoulder and he says, are you okay, Coach Bill? <laughs> yep, I'm going to keep doing Bible Bowl a while longer. Well, today I hope you'll be content or happy with the sermon. 
If not, I hope you'll, be, you'll feel very convicted about not being content with the sermon. That's because today I want to look at a topic that I believe we all struggle with to some degree, and that's contentment. Being happy with something is just kind of a greater degree of what we all want. What the world seems to recognize is pretty important, and that's contentment. No one wants to be always discontented, but often that's our reality. There's always something in our lives or something missing from our lives that disturbs our contentment. Now, it's interesting to note that the world also, outside of the church, okay, the world has somewhat of a grasp on the importance and the value of contentment but they only have some idea of how to really make it happen. I found several quotes. I'm going to read some of them, and you'll see some truth in some of these things. For example, uh, Benjamin Franklin said, Content makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men poor. And then this is maybe an apocryphal quote. I don't know the source of it. I've not been able to find the source of it, but I had no shoes, and I complained until I met a man who had no feet. And then Albert Schweitzer said, happiness is nothing more than good health and a bad memory. (laughs) Socrates, the philosopher, said, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. There's some truth in that, right? Martha Washington, yes, George's wife, the greater part of our happiness or misery depends upon our dispositions and not upon our circumstances. There's some truth in that, too. Uh, The Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, Wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. Now, eh, I don't know about that one. We'll look at that here in a little bit. Socrates again said, Contentment is natural wealth. Luxury is artificial poverty. And then uh, Charles Schultz. You know who Charles Schultz is? Peanuts, right? Learn from yesterday, live for today, look to tomorrow, rest this afternoon. And I've learned, uh, John Stuart Mill said, I've learned to seek my happiness by limiting my desires rather than attempting to satisfy them. And again, I'm not so sure about that one. That one doesn't quite ring true to me. The last word goes to Dr. Seuss, okay? Just tell yourself, Ducky, you're really quite lucky. That's good advice from Dr. Seuss. So we can see that the world thinks a lot about contentment too. And a lot of the things that the world thinks and says about contentment ring true, but inevitably they fall short. Because in the world, it's about being content by somehow wanting less, which is, if you think about it, it's kind of hard or almost impossible for anyone to accomplish. In the world, contentment is about a matter of the will alone. I'm going to do it, I'm not going to do it. Where in Christ, contentment is a matter of grace. It's a matter of finding our our satisfaction, our sufficiency, our contentment, not in ourselves, but in God alone, in Christ alone, as we sang this morning. That's not, when we think of it this way, that's not about wanting less in our lives, but it's about wanting more, more of the right things, more of Him. Think about that. Now, the classic passage I'm sure many of us think of when we think of contentment is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians where he wrote, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, 
and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's a whole lot to unpack here. First, Paul says what? He says he learned. When we're discontent about anything, that idea that Paul learned should be encouraging to us because what does that say? We can learn. We can grow. It implies that through his experiences, God taught Paul. It indicates that this is a process, and it's not something that God just magically instills in us all of a sudden. God taught Paul contentment, and Paul learned. He can teach us too, and we can learn too. This is one of those things that if any of us are honest, we have to say, we haven't arrived. I'm not quite there yet. But this is also one of those things that we can say we can be encouraged because it's a state that we can grow in. We can cultivate contentment in our lives. If that wasn't true, then the sermons you're going to hear this morning would be absolutely pointless, and Johnny Failer could say to Coach Bill, you're the poorest preacher I've ever heard. The original language here for content is from a word that means to suffice. It's sufficient. It's adequate. Content, it's satisfied with one's lot. So Paul tells us that he's satisfied in whatever situation he finds himself. Now the context here, the immediate context of this passage, is material things. And so isn't it true that so many people, believers in Christ are included and otherwise, struggle with being satisfied with what they have or what they don't have? Material things and money are often a source of discontentment. But clearly, discontentment goes well beyond just material things, right? There's an emotional discontentment that often plagues us about many other things. Things aren't going right in some life circumstance. Some relationship maybe isn't all we want it to be. Some school situation isn't what we hoped for. A job is unsatisfying. We don't get something we really, really want. Now, before we move along, let me add this qualifier. There's nothing wrong with seeking to change some life circumstances. If you have a terrible job that doesn't pay well enough for you to meet your needs, it's okay to seek a better job. It's okay to seek more training to qualify you for something else. If you're sick, it's okay to look for and to pray for a way to get well. If a relationship isn't all you hoped for, it's okay for God, to, it's okay for you to ask God to improve that relationship and you might start with what he might want to do in you. So being content isn't just a kind of a que-sera-sera attitude. In other words, whatever will be, will be. I'm not just saying, suck it up, folks. Get used to it, grit your teeth, and be happy. That's not what being content is about, okay? Much of the time, it's okay to try to improve our lot in life. But cultivating contentment has little to do with what we trust for our contentment and everything to do with who we trust. Let me say that again. Cultivating contentment has little to do with what we trust, but it has everything to do with who we trust for our contentment. That's why we see at the end of this passage this very much abused phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's abused because people use that to say I get whatever I want. This is saying I can be content 
in anything that happens, even bad things. Aha, now we're getting somewhere. That's the key, the secret, the source of cultivating contentment. What, or in this case, who is the source of that contentment? Is it in people? Is it in something we want in life? Is it in things? Is it in money? Is it in possessions? Even if those people are good people, they're gifts of God in our lives. Even if we want good things, even if we want godly things in our lives, even if the things we enjoy, the money we have, the possessions we enjoy are good, godly and God-given, it's not in those people or in those things that we find contentment. If we find contentment, that contentment must be in the giver of those good things that we enjoy and not in the gifts themselves. According to the author of a great book I just completed called Chasing Contentment, contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. To grow in contentment, we must embrace the reality that true contentment cannot be based on the circumstances, even the good circumstances of our lives. Even those good things can be gone in a minute. And if our contentment is founded on, it's based on those things, then our contentment is gone in a minute too. Think of Paul, who wrote this to the Philippians about contentment, the passage we read a few minutes ago. Apparently, one of the things that helped him grow in contentment was finding it, no doubt, through God's grace, in some of the worst circumstances of his life. How about when he and Silas were in the Philippian jail in Acts chapter 16? You remember that story? They were imprisoned after casting a demon out of a slave woman. Now, the demon was a fortune teller. Excuse me. And when the men who owned that slave saw that their contentment, their means of earning a really nice living from this poor demon-possessed girl was slipping away, they incited a riot against Paul and against Silas, and they were thrown into prison. So let's think about that for a moment before we see what Paul and Silas's response was. Here they were preaching the gospel in Philippi. They encountered this demon-possessed slave girl, and in a demonstration of God's power and deliverance and authority, they cast this demon out. Shouldn't that earn them something? Some kind of kudos? Maybe an attaboy? Maybe a pat on the back? Huh? What did this service in the kingdom get them? As Barney Fife might say, heartache, nothing but heartache. But then we read their response. They sang. They sang, they worshipped, they were basically in a dungeon, and they sang hymns to God and they prayed. The fact that they were singing in the midst of terrible circumstances, anybody want to be where they were? I'm glad I didn't see any hands that go up, I would have had to worry about you. They were singing in the midst of these terrible circumstances, it shows us that contentment works from the inside out. It had to be because their outward circumstances were not the stuff of song. But doesn't this seem counterintuitive to us? So often we think that if we could just change our circumstances, then we'd be happy. 
We are restless and discontented because of the difficult circumstances we encounter. So we focus our attention on our jobs, on our health, on our relationships, on our children's behavior, on problems at church, physical appearance, and so on and so on and so on. If this one thing, this one thing would just change, we think, then my life would be so much better. If this one thing would just change. We once had a sermon here at TCF called if only, if only this, if only that, then life would be better. Then I'd be content or I'd be happy. And this is where we see that true Bible-based, grace-based contentment is truly way, way, way better than a change of circumstances. Instead of the source being from the outside, instead of depending on changing circumstances, Biblical contentment comes from within, and that comes from God's grace, enabling us to endure through any kind of life circumstances. Paul said, in any circumstance. How else can we explain Paul and Silas singing in jail? Doesn't make sense, does it? Stephen Curtis Chapman had a song about this called What Kind of Joy? Let me read the lyrics to that. Anybody in their right mind would have given up their preaching and headed for home. They've been warned a hundred times, but something inside them keeps giving them hope. And just when you think they'd be crying instead of the tears, there's joy in their eyes. What kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? What kind of joy is this that gives the prisoner his song? What kind of joy could stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory? This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. Anybody else with his pain would want to shake their fist at heaven and give up the fight because trouble had been Paul's middle name ever since he'd been captured by God's blinding light. But just when his hope should be dying, if you listen, you'll hear him singing a song. What kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? What kind of joy is this that gives the prisoner his song? What kind of joy could stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory? This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. When we're in Christ, my brothers and sisters, we are forgiven and we are free. And that joy is accessible to us. That contentment is accessible to us. This kind of joy, this kind of contentment can only come from God's grace. Now again, this doesn't mean that life doesn't hurt. Contentment doesn't mean ignoring problems. Or it doesn't mean pretending they don't exist. It's absolutely not positive confession. In fact, if you think about it, it's exactly the opposite. A contented person is one who recognizes, maybe even names the challenges, the difficult circumstances, even the pain and the suffering in life, but can nevertheless, in the midst of those things, rest in God. That's why the unique piece that Paul also wrote about What did he say about that unique peace that believers have? He said it passes understanding. It's peace in the midst of turmoil. And that's just not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to have peace when things around us are in turmoil. It's God's unique peace in our hearts. And we just don't understand how it can be, except there's some things about how it can be that we do understand because we know about God's grace. So Paul, sometime after his singing debut in this Philippian jail, 
wrote to the Christians in that same city what we just read. I have learned to be content in any and every circumstance. So back to our definition of contentment here for just a moment. Contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. There's a word we need to unpack a little bit. If we're going to learn to be content, as Paul wrote, we must not only understand to some degree, but we need to embrace in our hearts the doctrine of God's providence. Understanding that everything in creation is under the watchful, providing care of God is absolutely critical for our ability to find contentment in Him. Not only does God supply all things, He arranges all things. He arranges all of them according to His plan, and His plan is always for our good and for His glory. For Christians, this understanding is meant to produce in our hearts peace and comfort and contentment even when circumstances in our lives might seem to say we should be anything but content, we should feel anything but peace in our hearts. Now, the first thoughts about the current Sunday night seminar that Jim is teaching, four more weeks of that, were brought when Joel wondered several weeks ago, several months ago now actually, Joel wondered aloud in an elders meeting if we should develop some sort of a catechism for the seminar. Now, the seminar has now been developed into the development of a creed, which is similar. But some of us were raised in traditions where a catechism was kind of a handbook of the faith. It presented foundational truths that we must learn to be faithful followers of Christ. There's one famous catechism that has a good definition of providence, and I want to look at that. This is the Heidelberg Catechism, and it says that providence is the almighty and everywhere power or present power of God whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And then the next question in the catechism is, why should we study this? What good will it do? And here's the Heidelberg Catechism's answer to that, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. We read in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of all your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about God's providence? He's intimately involved in every aspect of our life, so much that he has every hair on our head numbered. Some of us have smaller numbers than others. But he has every hair on our head numbered, okay? And we are of more value than those sparrows that not a one falls to the ground apart from him. John Piper notes that we have a phrase in English, see to that. You know that phrase? You've heard that? Something needs doing and someone says, well, I'll see to that. It means somebody is going to take steps to make sure it happens. 
So providence is when absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God sees to it that it happens. We read in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, it tells us that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So providence teaches us that God is not disconnected from anything happening in the world or here's where it meets us, anything that happens in our lives as believers in Christ. So it's not just macro, God's in charge of human history, but it's micro, it's down to the tiniest circumstances. God's involved in all those things. I remember a Barry Maguire song where he sang, I don't believe in luck, I believe in Jesus. In a biblical worldview, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as blind fate. We serve an omnipotent God who is also omniscient and he's also all wise. And here's the good part. He's also all loving. He's the one who sustains, who governs and orders all things. Now, if we do not accept that biblical reality, we cannot have contentment in our lives. We can't cultivate contentment. If God's providence is not true, if God's providence is not working in my life, it's not working in human history, I can't be content in anything. Because you know what that means? It's all random chance. And it's essentially meaningless. And I don't know about you, but that idea, that thought, that it's all random chance and it's all meaningless, that brings me absolutely no comfort. And it brings me absolutely no contentment. Think about this. Any attempt to understand contentment must begin with God. How about this? God is the original content being. He invented contentment. God was not created. He had no beginning. And because he's the only uncreated being, he's the only one who's never dependent on somebody else or something else for his contentment. All of us are always dependent. We get to choose on whom and on what we'll depend. But God is entirely self-dependent because he is self-created. Because of that, God alone, only God, can be the source of any true and lasting contentment. So why is this so difficult for us? Why is contentment so difficult for us? You know, it's probably because we seek it in almost everything and everyone but God. Lack of contentment is as old as human history. We've never been satisfied. And we can go back to the very first book of the Bible and see we've never been satisfied with what God has given us. Think of Adam and Eve. What did God give them? Everything. Everything. He gave them absolutely everything they needed and he gave them almost everything they wanted except for one thing. Now that one thing was not something they needed, but they convinced themselves with the help of the devil that it was something that they wanted. And they were given God's very firm warning, don't eat, don't eat from that one tree. Now the warning was so strong that the consequence of it, of ignoring that, was death. At its simplest, the command from God is essentially saying, If you try to make yourself happy by disobeying my words, you will become very, very unhappy. Instead of finding life, 
you will find death. So the warning about the tree was the first test for us of contentment. Would Adam and Eve find their contentment in God and God alone, or would they look for contentment in the things that God created? Of course, we know how that turned out. Instead of finding satisfaction in God alone, instead of saying, I've learned to be, like Paul said, I've learned to be content in everything that God gives. I've got everything I want because God provides everything I need. Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit of the tree, somehow thinking, thinking that it would bring contentment to them, but it certainly didn't. So this is a sobering reality for all of us as well. Where will we find our satisfaction and contentment? Where will we seek our contentment? Will it be in things? Will it be in people and circumstances in our lives? Or will we find it in Christ alone? We have to remember that though with the story of Adam and Eve, discontent with God's specific provision and prohibition led to sin, sometimes the things in which we seek contentment aren't necessarily sin. That's one reason this is hard for us too. It's not always sin to have stuff. It's certainly not always sin to have relationships. It's not a sin to want a good job. It's not a sin to want friends, to want a decent car, to want well-behaved children. Sometimes there are good or at least neutral things in our lives that can be a source of discontentment. Because why? We're depending on those things, those good or neutral things for our satisfaction and our joy rather than seeing them as what they are. They are gifts from God, and then seeking and glorifying God as the giver of those good gifts. So it's easier to see how we shouldn't seek our contentment in things God clearly labels as sinful, than to see how we shouldn't look for our satisfaction in those things which are good, or at least neutral. Husbands and wives, for example, know that to seek sexual satisfaction in someone other than their spouses is sinful. It's called adultery. We all know that to want something we think will satisfy us in some way and to steal to get it is sinful. But it's harder for us to wrestle with this idea that finding contentment in good or neutral things is a challenge too. Every good gift is from God. He's the good giver. He allows us to enjoy these good gifts but we're not to seek our contentment in those good gifts. We're to seek our contentment in the giver, in the giver of those good gifts. We were made to love, and so we find ourselves loving people a lot. That's a part of, it's an important part of our lives, and it, it's a very good thing, but we have to be careful. If we are not careful, we can turn good things like close relationships into ultimate things. That's the difference. There's good things and there's ultimate things. And the only ultimate thing needs to be our creator. God's gifts can again replace God himself. And when he takes them away, we become undone. So even the good things, if he chooses to take them away from us and we were dependent on them, what happens to our contentment? What happens to our joy? What happens to our peace? Even good things from God can become too important and rob us of contentment in the short term or over the long haul. This isn't to dismiss the pain and grief over genuine loss, okay? That's just normal. 
And it's the question, though, the question we all need to ask, where do we find our ultimate satisfaction in life? Being content in God is being satisfied in God regardless of what's going on outside you, even in a Philippian jail. We can't be truly content unless we are content in God himself. A person living in contentment can sit quietly under the reassuring affirmation of our great God. The Lord is his or her sufficiency. Now, can we acknowledge that submitting to God otherwise good desires is hard work? It's not easy. But it is a work of grace. And we need God's grace to cultivate contentment. Another passage of Scripture I want to read addresses this idea. This is again Paul writing to the Corinthians in this case. And he says, To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, he says. I am content with what? Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. That kind of covers the gamut, doesn't it? And then he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Another translation of uh, verse 10 says, so I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, the word for content here in the first version I read is different from the other verses that we looked at, and it seems to kind of step it up a notch. It's not just sufficient, which is what it means in the, the passage we read from Philippians, but it's pleased to make to think it's good, to take pleasure in. It's the same word used in those accounts where Jesus was baptized and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So let's also note that there's a difference between complaining to God and complaining about God. Paul here brought his complaint about his thorn in the flesh to God. There's no hint in this passage of Scripture that God ever chastised Paul for asking it to be removed. God didn't say you shouldn't have asked for that. Instead, God revealed his higher purpose for, God's, or for Paul's good and for God's glory. And he also told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm enough. What a great verse to live by every day, isn't it? My grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. Be content, God's saying. Be content in my grace, even in the midst of this hardship. And in Paul's case, even with this thorn that I'm not going to take away from you, and I've told you why. That's a passage we could spend a lot more time on, but I want to focus on the content part. That's why it's so encouraging to read Paul's response. I'm content. I'm content. I'm content with what? With weaknesses, with insults, catastrophes. Wow. Persecutions and in pressures because of Christ for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So as the author of this book that I mentioned a moment ago, Eric Raymond notes, there's a difference between complaining to God. In other words, we, like we read in the Psalms, we read this often. How long, O Lord? 
and complaining about God. The first one, complaining to God, is supported by an enduring trust that God hears and loves. Whereas the second, when we complain about God, is betrayed by an eroding trust that God hears and loves. A heart that is content is a heart that rests in God's providence. Resting in God's providence is being content, resting in a good God. As believers, we should be the most contented people in the world, but we should also be the least contented with the world. We don't want to find our contentment with the world. The world cannot satisfy. The world cannot satisfy. Whatever it is that thing, whatever it is that relationship that you find satisfaction in, if it's a good thing, thank God for it. But don't depend on it for your satisfaction. God alone can satisfy. When we settle in our minds that God is good and wise, we can then truly rest in His providence. And this means that we can be content whether things go our way or when God seems to go on completely against whatever we have planned or whatever we have wanted. We can calm our hearts. We can rest in Him. We can sit still and know that He's the all-powerful. He's the good. He's the wise God. Psalm 119 says, You are good. Speaking of God, you are good and you do good. Instead of giving us what we might consider a sufficient explanation for our hardships. Now, Paul got that. He might not have thought it was sufficient at first, but Paul got that when, he, when God said, no, I'm not going to take this thorn in the flesh away. But what did he give him? He gave him, rather than a sufficient explanation, he gave him a sufficient person. My grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Don't you want this? Don't you want this? I do. Don't you want to learn to be content in any and every circumstance? Aren't you tired of the turmoil that hard things bring to your lives and the lack of peace that you have? I am. I am. And I wish I could say that this morning, as we respond to this message, that God's going to magically change that, but he's not. But he will give you his grace to grow in this contentment. I really believe that this morning. But let's also think about this. Let's be careful what we ask for. Because this is something we must learn. And it is a process. And most often, the learning process is difficult. If you don't believe that, ask the Apostle Paul. You can look in Scripture and see all the things that he went through to learn this contentment. I want to close this morning with a song written by John Newton. It's pro- he, you know who John Newton is? He wrote Amazing Grace, the uh, saved... Uh, former slave ship captain, wonderful story. Well, that's the song he's best known for. I never heard of this song before. It's called I Ask the Lord. Jim's probably heard of it. Maybe not, but uh, my guess is nobody else has heard of it. It's a pretty obscure song. Anybody else heard of it? I Ask the Lord? Okay. I found this version of the song with an extra verse by the guy who sings it. And as we listen to this song and we close here, I want you to pray about what your response is going to be. And I want you to seek the Lord as we seek Him for our contentment.